You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Sahar Muhammad Ali. So today, my guest on the podcast is Sahar Muhammad Ali from a very special organization um, that I won't try to uh, to introduce. I actually, Sahar, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. So you work for a very special type of organization that work, you know, that has caused you and I to interact for now years, right? Uh, yes. And Civic is the organization. Can you explain to me what is Civic and what what it does? Uh, thanks so much, John, for hosting me, and I'm excited to uh, share my perspectives on a few of these very important issues on urban war. Um, so CIVIC uh, is a, the acronym for the organization I work at. It's uh, Center for Civilians in Conflict. It's been around since 2003, and we engage with governments and armed actors on how to strengthen uh, protection of civilians uh, through policies, trainings, um, and bring in the civilian perspective to military planners, operators, and governments to make a better policies to uh, strengthen civilian protection. I'm the director for our Middle East and South Asia program. I work out of our New York City office, and uh, we have offices in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Yemen, Nigeria, Ukraine, uh, Mali. So we are engaging with a lot of different, uh, both uh, Western militaries, but as well as non-Western militaries in the countries we operate, as well as with NATO um, and with uh, various other coalitions like the G5 Sahel, uh, as well as do advocacy with uh, the UN on protection of civilians. So you said it's only been around since 2003. I mean, I don't want to be a, you know, I want to be short with it, but haven't civilians always been on the battlefield? Was What was the driving force for... Um, your organization and really the emphasis on this? Yeah, a good question. I think when uh, the U.S. Uh, when uh, when the U.S. military went to Afghanistan in uh, late 2001 and then in 2003 to Iraq, uh, the founder of Civic uh, started going to these countries and talking to civilians who were being impacted uh, by uh, U.S. Uh, airstrikes and civilian casualties that were occurring and uh, just trying to raise awareness. And so Marla Rosikas, who's the founder of Civic, was trying to raise awareness with the US military is that, uh, you know, even if uh, the US had said this was within rules of engagement, you know, what more can be done to acknowledge uh, uh, civilians, uh, civilian death and injury? Uh, she was uh, killed in Baghdad, the uh, suicide bomb attack, regrettably. Uh, but then the work of the uh, of the organization expanded, and we also started uh, not only talking about recognizing civilian harm, but what more can militaries do to reduce and minimize incidental harm to civilians. Uh, that, that sounds like a very big goal. Um, and you sound, I mean, the Middle East is your portfolio. That's that's huge. Um, and I know this from interacting with you for now almost years now. Um, you probably have more combat—I wouldn't say experience, but time in combat zones—than anybody I know. Can you talk to me about like where you go and what it is you do when you're there? Uh, so we—I mean, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yemen, and uh, and have in Syria—not in Syria uh, recently, but I have in the past. 
Uh, you know, I talk to civilians. We go to areas of fighting. We talk to civilians to see what is happening uh, and how they've been impacted during the battle. We talk to the various armed actors in the area that are operating. It could be state actors. It could be non-state armed groups. And we just try to better understand what are the challenges that civilians are experiencing during operations, during a big major combat operations like uh, Mosul or Raqqa or smaller clearing of villages and retaking towns. Um, and we, uh, you know, so it is very important for me to actually see firsthand what is happening because it, uh, it and also uh, from the civilian perspective, but also hearing from the local commander on the ground who is grappling with, uh, you know, resource issues, lack of trainings, uh, lack of guidance to even fight, uh, to even know how to fight, especially in populated areas. Uh, and uh, it's, 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 it just informs uh, my thinking in terms of how I can better push the debate, not push the debate, but it's more uh, get military commanders to think more about what more they can do to mitigate and minimize, but also hearing their challenges. It's in a very complex and dynamic environment. Because as you and I have discussed many times, you know, uh, the other side is using a lot of different tactics to create casualties, to, you know, uh, uh, to fight from civilian areas. And, and as you know, John, that, you know, most militaries don't want to fight in cities, for example, right? And it's about, uh, but the enemy wants to draw in people into cities because that's where you can hide in cities. And uh, and so when we go there, when I go there and talk to people, it's really my understanding on all sides to better inform what more can be done. Uh, because I think that uh, it also gives gives you the kind of uh, credibility when you're talking to both uh, the armed actors, but also we're trying to bring the civilian perspective uh, because sometimes, you know, a lot of times the military is not engaging with the civilians and they're not finding from the civilians what they, decisions they are making uh, to protect themselves during operations. Yeah, that's crazy that you hit, you kind of hit all sides. I think kind of a knee-jerk reaction would say, you know, you're just there, the, the voice trying to tell the military on the, how to better do or better follow the rules of um, protecting civilians in conflict. But, you know, you're actually trying to engage all sides of an armed conflict to include the civilians that are there. I'm like, to understand why they're either staying or finding out the reality on the ground. Is that, is that a kind of a true statement? Yes. And it's, it's so fascinating when you talk to civilians about the, the decision making process that they have to make during a fight about, you know, it is, you know, the laws of war, the article, uh, you know, additional protocol, one of the Geneva Conventions, you know, the, uh, and you know, the, the, the framework of conduct of facilities, etc. you know, talks about advanced warning to civilians before military operations and, you know, minimizing incidental harm and proportionality analysis. Uh, and, you know, you can you can sort of do that. But like how when civilians know that a fight is about to start and then hearing from them what choice they make. And as sometimes they're able to leave very quickly, but sometimes they're prevented from leaving, as we've seen in the battle against the Islamic State in, uh, in Iraq and Syria. And the choice that they would make, whether they should stay or to remain when the battle is around the corner, when major intensive airstrikes are happening, munitions are happening. But you know, sometimes they're prevented from leaving because in, uh, you know, ISIS was like targeting civilians that they tried to leave 
um, uh, from their homes. But or sometimes they're unable to leave because their family members are too old to leave, or they're sick and they have dialysis issues, and it's just so complex, you know, the decision making of a civilian. And so we just try to hear from them, uh, from all, you know, just say like when you decided to leave or why you didn't leave. And then what we try to do is when we engage with militaries is say, just because they stayed behind doesn't mean they're the enemy. Then, you know, uh, of course, there's a principle of distinction under the law, but you can't just presume, presume that they are sympathetic to the enemy. Um, and so getting, you know, with those sort of fact patterns that we try to get with civilians and we feed into our trainings or with armed actors is like, you know, put themselves in your shoes and, uh, and think about some of the choices that you would have to make. And, and it just to, so you're better informed on what to do. And um, so I think it's, it is, uh, I think that's, it's also just also fascinating, um, you know, God, how many women I've met who've, you know, in the, you know, who fleeing Mosul City or even during the shaping operations who would like, their husbands were killed during the fighting, but they picked up the entire family and they would move house to house to house, seeking shelter from, you know, fires coming from all sides. And you're just, you know, you're sitting and talking to them in a in a in this hot tent in 50 Celsius weather in Iraq, and, and there are the kids are around them and just just talking with such focus about how they uh, were seeking safety, and it's just mind blowing. Yeah. You know? So I think that was one of the things that surprised me um, when I met you and started to talk with you about not only in your other, I would call them non-government organizations, not to say that Civic is one, um, on the battlefield. Um, how did Civic get a seat at the table? Um, I, I know that you have, I mean, you do have a seat at the table. I, I, I've talked to you about you being in um, the headquarters during operations and being invited to be a part of the um discussions how did that come about uh well it took a while i think uh i think the civics credibility comes from having a very pragmatic approach uh in how we are bringing concerns of civilians to military operators so uh, and then because we also speak and hear from the military planners of the challenges they have we i speak to soldiers I saw thousands of soldiers at the front lines who were talking about the challenges they have. And so when we try to bring that analysis into our discussions with commanders, uh, I think they see the value of it. They're like, here's an organization that is talking to everybody. And, you know, of course, the baseline of, of all of this is uh, the law of armed conflict and everybody has to operate within that. But what we try to say is, like, how do you operationalize uh, you know, minimizing incidental harm. Like how, so we tried to bring in a lot of uh, military language and, the, uh, and some of the, uh, you know, the analysis from the, the TTP lens, the tactics, techniques, procedures, and uh, lens and saying, okay, if you can bring in, uh, in your planning process from, uh, uh, and what would the impact would be on civilians, civilian infrastructure, and looking at the second, third order effects on this. And if you have a training like this, what, you know, and we design trainings like this. So I think um, it has, and I think therefore we get an audience. But John, it's not like, you know, I knock on the door for commander and I'm like, hi, I'm Sahar from Civic, come talk to me. I mean, the look is like, who are you, you know? Yeah. You know, it's not like we as an organization are providing them weapons or money. We're just a non-governmental organization that's saying, hey, you can, it contributes to your mission effectiveness if you protect civilians. 
Yeah. And I, so from a kind of a personal lens, um, you know, I go to, you know, I go to a lot of conferences that, um, where the protection of civilians is the topic, whether, and especially in urban warfare, because that is the place where the most amount of civilians will be present for armed conflict, um, is in urban combat. But I don't find, I find that some organizations don't understand both sides of the, of course, they want to advise the military, like, hey, you have to do better. You, you have to lower your civilian casualty count. You have to take more actions to, you know, prevent incidental harm. But um, I find few that understand it like you do, that under, that try to understand both the military challenges of conducting an operation in that environment. Um, and also to find out that, you know, this is not just about the United States military. I mean, you advise the Iraqi military, the Afghanistan military. You're advising all kinds of militaries that each one of them have their their differences in you know proficiency of the tasks whether it's urban combat or awareness of the the kind of rules that should be being followed um that aren't uh, so it's not just about the u.s military is that right oh absolutely and i find that uh you know of course i've actually learned a lot from the u.s military too uh and from even from the afghan military and hearing their challenges you know you yeah, what, you know, John, what I also like about when I talk to you and when I attend some of these conferences or if there are opportunities to hear more, uh, where there are more military planners and operators involved is it's a learning process. And I think that um, what we, uh, I learn a lot and then I try to share my uh, insights on things and hopefully I get a receptive audience. But yes, we, we are not only engaging with the US military, uh, we are engaging with the Afghans, with the Yemenis, with the Iraqis, my colleagues engaging with the Nigerians, the Ukrainians, uh, you know, G5 Sahel. And, uh, you know, those uh, militaries have such other challenges. You know, uh, in Afghanistan, you have literacy challenges. You know, you have, uh, you know, it's it's a newly created military over the last, you know, 18 years. And uh, the attrition rate and, uh, you know, uh, is, is so high. And some people who've been trained professionally then, you know, get killed in battle. Um, you know, getting, uh, but they have so many limitations in terms of uh, trainings and resources and, you know, you know, I always talk about capabilities of forces, and uh, and yes. you and I talked about that. And of course, for urban environments, it is the hardest thing, because most militaries are not trained to fight in populated areas. Uh, and when the dynamics with infrastructure and population density and terrain is so complicated, and the enemy is hiding in civilian areas, so uh, you know, hearing the Afghan perspective on doing a clearing operation, or you know. Uh, during the battle against ISIS, talking to the, the counterterrorism units, uh, but then also talking to other infantry brig uh, 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 rank and file in the Iraqi security forces or the Peshmerga. It's just been really informative um, because most militaries are, I, I, I think most militaries, you know, the, the commanders, okay, you have to clear this area. And of course, there's the bucket of actors that are what will use any weapon that they have to you know clear through an area including uh, you know and then of course they don't care the entire strategy is to uh, terrorize the population by using chemical weapons and other things and there's that category of armed actors that we have not been able to influence much uh, but then there are others who i really believe that they do want to protect civilians because you know they're the citizens of their own country and they're fighting in their own country it's just the how to yep and that's what's really interesting and fascinating. Uh, and 
you know, a lot of these uh, advanced tools and techniques that, you know, for example, doing collateral damage estimates and assessing battle damage assessment, assessments and no strike lists, etc. Um, that, you know, of course, the U.S. and other Western militaries have pioneered in NATO, etc. It's, it's like it's great to have this bucket, you know, these this list. But like, is it really contextualized to really take into account the impact on civilians? And that's what we even try to do with the advanced militaries. Is like, it's great if you have them, if these tools are there, but how are they really contextualized to minimize harm to civilians? And that, you know, not everything is about, you know, we talk about munitions effect too, not, you know, you and I have talked about this, where, oh, precision guided munitions. I'm like, okay, first of all, most militaries don't have them because they're very expensive. And a precision guided munition is as good as the intelligence that feeds into the targeting process, right? So, um, so and, and again, you know, you can't also have, just have non-Western militaries just say, well, if I had a precision guided munition, I, I would do better. It still takes a lot to be able to use weapons properly, in a, in a, especially in an urban environment. And the training that's involved in that, the information flow, the intelligence that feeds into it, and to really know what you're doing. And to try to even after, I find what I find very challenging and uh, is that most, a lot of military, it's, it's, it's happening more now, but you know this, John, from your work, is that a lot of militaries don't really assess what the impact is on civilians. Right. right. Uh, I think this is, and this is where I really wanted to go with the conversation about the, what are the kind of so let's say the strategic environment has changed for all militaries and the either you know because of the let's say the recent urban conflicts of the last five to ten years in our in Iraq and in Syria and against the fight against ISIS um, and the number of civilians which are um, you know I'm not a histor historian but I, I would say that the the impact of these battles on civilians is um, much more so than we've seen in recent history. Um, both the destruction of civilian facilities, but also the number of civilians just based on population density that are getting caught inside of a conflict. If you look at Mosul, you're talking 750,000 people um, caught inside of it. It's not, so this isn't an operation where you basically empty it, a city out and then fight it out. Um, and then you know maybe you do collateral damage assessments on, okay, now what, when the people move back? Um, the, the solutions um, is where, I think, again, where you and I intersect on kind of a military practitioner or warfare, um, um, let's say a scholar, mm -hmm. I, I'd say student. <laughs> but when, you know, when people don't understand the challenges, but there's solutions, uh, let's start with some of the solutions. One of the solutions would be uh, increase the number, you know, basically a military's use of precision guided munitions. So stop firing non-precision guided munitions and start firing precision. And I and for me, that, that 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 dog don't hunt because um, we have recent examples of where all the fires might have been precision guided munitions, but you still had to destroy every building in the city because it's called the precision. Well, there's a guy named Amos Fox who I really love his writing. He calls it the precision paradox. So if I if I have intelligence that tells me that there's bad person in a building and I strike that building, but I don't have I don't eliminate him and he just moves to the next building through an underground tunnel. Now I got to destroy that building. That's not precision munitions. So it's not a solution to lowering the impact of um, yeah. conflict to achieve your mission. Oh, 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I agree. Amos Fox, I've, I've been reading some of his stuff, and he's terrific, and he really analyzes it from that lens. And I mean, the same thing. We were in Mosul, and, you know, ISIS fighters were in one roof, airstrike would hit, or Iraqi security forces munitions. Then they would go to another one. I mean, they would, by the time the airstrike would come down, or, or whatever, you know, other munitions coming, they would move to another house, and they would just jump and jump and jump. And in the meantime, all these homes are just getting killed, destroyed. And, okay, so I'm, I'm sort of I'm compressing the time. It's not like they would do it automatically. Yeah, yeah. But, no, but you know what, I'm just giving the example. And I remember we were in West Mosul, I mean, literally, and the entire blocks wiped down. And of course, you know, you just don't know who's inside the building because had civilians were, you know, like inside hiding in the in the basements, and and I think the uh, I, I think it is it is important to call out that precision guided munitions is not the panacea. It is really knowing the information that military planners operators need to really know what the battle space is about in a dense urban environment and really know. And even after, for example, if you've cleared a block, mm -hmm. to really pause and see, assess what happened and to see how can you integrate the key learnings to do better for the next block. And I know this is all related to operational tempo and, you know, and all of the the, the, strate the other things that, uh, that feed into... Uh, uh, how operations take, especially in urban environment, because it's not like you're going to clear a block and then wait for two months and move to another block. You know, I mean, something maybe that's what the 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 they they decide to do, but it's not. It doesn't. You know, we've seen at least in in uh, Raqqa and Mosul that wasn't the case. Um, and and I think what what we have to, we have to try to do is say, okay, why don't you assess and learn and try to feed that into real time, because. Uh, you know, how how are you really learning what the enemy's tactics are? Uh, because even if you look at, I mean, in, in, in Iraq and in Syria, I mean, the enemy, first of all, had underground tunnels. I mean, they had three years to, you know, store all the munitions and all the V-beds were coming from there. I went to some of these underground tunnels and, my God, there was something to look at, you know. Then you had, you know, they booby-trap all the buildings. And so even if you use a fuse a weapon properly to take out the top floor, if an entire building is booby-trapped, the entire building blows up and there are civilians in there. So I think pausing sometime during operations really understand. First of all, I think there needs to be more emphasis on really knowing more about a terrain, the infrastructure, how the weapons can, imp you know, the specific weapon that that particular unit has can, is either going to blow up an entire building. So, you know, you and I have talked about this. Why it's important to have structural engineers on your planning team, you know, uh, and to really know how the civilians are going to react and move around. And that constant flow of information is so important. But it all gets very... Uh, very much about like oh it, it, you know sometimes it comes down to okay let's go ahead this is a proportion it's a pro it's proportional you know and the, you know and sometimes the legal analysis is just not enough when you think about the second third order effect. Um, yeah, I think yeah. this is where again where for me your your organization's credibility increases with me is when you would articulate real world challenges but also lessons that are then provided to the military. This isn't just about, you know, being the voice in the room saying, hey, how are you considering civilians? You spend enough time over there where you, as units are rotating through, as headquarters switch out, where you're actually providing practical lessons on 
hey, I understand the military challenge, but have you thought about this solution, uh, uh, you know, in the targeting process or in the, you know, understanding of the, you know, in the mission analysis of the environment? That's different to me than an organization just saying, hey, look, this is a many, how many civilians you kill, you know, were killed during this operation and you need to do better. So I think, you know, each organization has its role. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, some organizations that are just documenting what the toll is on civilians. Yeah. I mean, Civic does too. We also do. We talk to civilians consistently to inform our analysis. But the other organizations that are focused a lot on just documenting the toll, I think they also play an important role in shining a spotlight because it is important to get that voice out from a civilian. And, you know, we all play our roles in this uh, in this environment. And I think that information to me is power because that, from whatever sites, I mean, sometimes, you know, you know, on the military side, they on the government side, they may not like the inf- the critique that's coming externally from uh, organizations that are saying, oh, so many civilians were killed. And sometimes what I find very frustrating, everybody gets focused on the numbers rather than how do you reduce it? How can you yes. do better? Yes. And, and, and there's a lot of finger pointing, your methodology is bad, your methodology is bad. And whether, where, whereas I think there is so much more that we can do both on all sides to come to solutions. So, but I do think that the role of other organizations to shine a spotlight is important too. And, um, you know, um, you know, we are constantly trying to learn and that's why I enjoy talking to you, John, because I know your focus on urban war is so critical uh, in all of this. And, you know, you focus a lot on the you know, capabilities and resources and trainings. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually get to be the outlier at all yeah. of our conferences and say, Hey, if you want to reduce the number of civilian casualties, increase the number of tanks. Um, and then I get the crazy look, but you know, a, a military that's not trained in urban combat that doesn't have mobile protected firepower, um, units trained in the ability to operate in that environment will increase their use of you know in, indirect fire support, air assets that are they, they are given. So um, I don't know if everybody in the room understands what I'm saying, but you always do on. If you want to get, you want to lower collateral damage, increase capabilities, whether that's training, lessons of how to do this. I actually want military to be more lethal, but I want it to be um, precise um, using combined arms maneuver to where they don't have to destroy and literally clear building to building and building and destroying each building because they are basically doing a clearing mission where they're, you know, um, not as trained. And I think we saw that in some recent operations in Iraqi military is one of the examples I use or in the battle of Morari where they just didn't have, um, they just didn't have mobile protective firepower. So they had to use other tactics and other tools, which I think it gives me to the, so the biggest question, and I think you and I have faced in the last year or so is kind of the international call for the, I won't say ban um, <laughs> for the what, what's the word we're using now? Avoid um, to avoid the use of explosive weapons in dense Pop- or in populated areas. That's right. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah no, I, I think the awareness around the use of these wide area effect weapons is staggering, right? I mean, the, the, sorry, the impact, right? If you go to the cities where wide area effect weapons are used, I mean, like you said, it's like. House to house, buildings destroyed, civilians killed inside. And again, I'm not talking about just 
state actors. I'm talking about, you know, the other side, everybody. Yeah. So I think it is, it is, I, I think the, the, the conversation is what can we do better? You know, and I, and I think I, as civic, I mean, we, we, you know, you and I have been on those conferences on, on these issues. And I think, you know, uh, some, some governments and militaries have put restrictions, have avoidance principles in their uh, policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they decide to avoid, because they know that some of these indirect fire weapons can cause a lot of damage, especially if you don't have trained units. Um, and, uh, and, some t- and, and again, so they do have an avoidance principle. And so if they have an avoidance principle, uh, it's, it's because there is, uh, but there is still like, what, what else is happening to uh, uh, ensure that the, the uh, mission and the military objective is also uh, uh, imp- uh, adhere, uh, sort of implemented sort of, or adhere to, or the mission is accomplished, sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in all of these discussions, I think it's, it's good that there's more awareness on it because most of the people who get killed in urban areas are civilians and most of the destruction that's happening is on civilian infrastructure. Uh, and so I think the awareness around uh, the use of these particular weapons um, is good. And I think on solutions and tactical solutions, operational solutions that uh, enable militaries to do better in fighting urban areas is something that continues to be, needs to be shared, explored, developed, because I think we all can do better yeah. in fighting no, urban areas. So, uh, and again, even as I said earlier, like just because we list all of these, some of the tools that are out there to, uh, on on battle damage assessments and tracking and, and uh, collateral damage assessments. I mean, honestly, when you see it in real time in a very high tempo conflict, A, are they tailored enough to take into account impact on civilians? And are they being effectively resourced, these tools, to actually do it in real time? Not five months later to identify lessons and feed into operational planning. Right. Um, but but I think this it's I think it's it is good that there's so much awareness on weapons usage uh, and uh, I think I think we and I think the goal is to do better. Yeah, and I I agree with you a hundred percent. And I want to do things I want to do things better. Um, although I use a you know, more military terminology, um, more lethal um, as in accomplish whatever the mission is. Um, I just think personally. Um, I think if if it, if if the use of wide area effects explosives is a mechanism to raise awareness for um, all sides to do better, I, I think that's great. Um, I just need more people to have a military understanding. Of what, what does that mean to me? It would mean um, somebody like the Iraqi military standing up a an urban unit. Um, as you know, the, the units that they threw at a lot of the urban challenges they had were not designed. Their counterterrorism units, their um, wide you know, desert armor brigades. Um, you know, if you want to be able to liberate a city, you could f- develop a specific unit um, with, you know, with all the capabilities and increased training in how do you do this um, better. That that is a way. Um, I just feel if you if you one, I want all militaries to understand that this is this is a real initiative going on. Um, the coming countries are already volunteering to sign a political declaration to restrict the use of explosive weapons. So this is a real initiative, but also what would be the side or side effects of 
if you took that tool away from a military, but still asked them to accomplish the mission, which is liberate a city? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, there is, you know, the awareness bit more about sharing good practices, operational tools that are tailored to minimize the impact on civilians. I think that is really important. Uh, in, and in, include in terms of the weapons usage. I uh, I also think that if there is with some militaries, you know, the only thing they have is a multiple barrel rocket. Yep. Yep. I mean, we saw that in Iraq, and uh, that's what they were using the IRAMs, and that we saw what happened with that. So. There, there are, you know, certain weapons that, you know, they're just inherently going to be indiscriminate because if you use them in a densely populated area. Yeah. So it's about milit- it's about the government resourcing yes. their, their militaries on, on better equipment, on better munitions that are tailored to be used appropriately in urban areas. Uh, and again, thinking about the civilians as as part of the you know in the planning process when they do operations so having an urban war center uh you know this we, we did a whole lessons learned analysis we interviewed hundreds of iraqi soldiers in the fight against isis and and i've shared the report with you and um it was just fascinating to hear their challenges and said we were not trained to fight in urban areas. We didn't know what to do. I mean, yes, some of the elite troops were, but again, it was infantry, house to house fighting, right? And there has to be more than this, that. Uh, so I think having, you know, getting lessons from different uh, uh, and recent battles and comparing them to the past battles uh, and also is, I think, so important. But what I sometimes find uh, in a lot of the military trainings are different is that the, the, the you know, some of us who work in the more in the civilian space, we're just not included in those discussions. So it becomes very much like all of the military planners are there and maybe you have a little bit of discussion about, oh, there's going to be displacement. So, okay, speak to the INGO that is going to provide food and medicine. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that is just not the only piece of urban war in terms of humanitarian assistance and displacement. But it's like getting, getting hearing from organizations and those that really know also what the impacts on civilians and getting those subject matter experts integrated into the military thinking and planning process. Yeah, and I think I, I hopefully I do my part because that's the, you know, when people ask me to join war games or, you know, doctrine discussions or training discussions, I'm like, well, you need to have Sahar in an organization like Civic who understand the challenges of urban combat while you're just now kind of focusing on it for the short term. You guys have been dedicated to it for a while. Okay, my last question I don't want to end our conversation without being able to ask you kind of a hard question on, uh, tell me, give me an example of success you've had in changing the way this is done. Um, and then, uh, then, you know, something that you, th- you hoped would have gone a different way, but didn't. And I know that sometimes that becomes commander, you know, military commanders, um, personality based, or sometimes it's, you know, situations on the ground, but I, I know you have examples of, Hey, here's a great success story that, I'd love to tell people on how somebody did factor this in and, and changes were made. So I would like to talk about uh, the Afghan uh, government uh, who enacted a uh, protection of civilians policy in 2017. It's called the Civilian Casualty Mitigation and Prevention Policy. 
which basically commits the government and its security forces to uh, minimize harm to civilians during operations, to assess civilian harm, uh, to uh, acknowledge when harm occurs, to provide uh, condolence payment assistance, etc. Um, and it's sort of a whole of government approach in terms of how they're prioritizing civilian protection. And, you know, this is the poorest, one of the poorest countries in the world, which has been fighting for decades. There's been war for, and again, you know, uh, uh, before the Taliban, uh, there, there was fighting. And then, of course, uh, uh, since 2001. And they have prioritized uh, civilian protection at the highest level, from the president down to uh, the, you know, the, all the commanders in the field. I have to give them credit that they are doing this. This is raising awareness. Uh, we have, and again, it's it, it, you said earlier. You know, uh, the will of a commander, or the, you know, political will is needed yeah. to move the debate on this. For a government, for a military commander to say, "Hey, listen, I can still be military effective while protecting civilians." It's not a choice. And that's what we're trying to do. And I think there is, there, it just takes, what I find, uh, it, I mean, it does take a long time. What I find a lot is that when uh, uh, forces are being trained, it's just like, okay, let's get them trained to clear an area, oh, one hour of the law of armed conflict, and let's, that's it, go train and go fight. And then civilian protection is, oh, oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we, we're not using indiscriminate weapons. You know, we told them not to use chemical weapons and oh, we told them not to use certain things. But yeah, they did their job and cleared. And I think that to me is a, uh, something has to change. So, but we have a good example like that. Of course, you know, NATO has a protection of civilians policy. Um, you know, the U.S. military is right now working on a, the U.S. government, Department of Defense is working on this uh, department of, new Department of defense, defense instruction on civilian casualty mitigation and prevention. You have the 2016 presidential uh, uh, executive order that commits the U.S. on civilian casualty mitigation and sharing best practices. So, yes, it's not about urban war, but these, these tools that are out there and committing a government uh, and military is committing. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, they are starting to, uh, um, they're actually in the process of finalizing a protection of civilians policy. Again, committing its forces on mitigating civilian harm. In Nigeria, they're starting to work on a policy like this. Uh, so there are, uh, we are finding examples um, of this, a positive a movement towards this, okay. um, and sometimes we 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 uh, are um, you know uh, sometimes we do a training with a uh, with one of our interlocutors, and I remember during the Mosul battle we did a training with the Peshmerga, and even though they didn't go into the city, they were in a shaping operation. And I remember one of the commanders sent me a WhatsApp said, "Oh my God, we just cleared this village, but I remembered what you told me about." the the civilians and yes i found them in the basement and we did this to help them and we we used the right weapon and i'm like wow it is uh, it is impressive i also find it's impressive so hard um just as a military guy is that you speak the language which is another i think vital component of this of multiple organizations coming together um you're speaking our language and objectives and missions and tactics. Uh, I think th that's a lesson for a lot of organizations, not just the military. This is a two-way conversation. 
No, thanks. You know, I think there is much more area of uh, information sharing and learning than people think. And, you know, I learn a lot from you, John. So I'm really glad that you have this great Urban War podcast. And I'm eager to learn from other speakers. And I do listen to The Spear as well. Nice. Thank <laughs> uh, you. It's so really, it's really, it's really interesting. Uh, uh, and, you know, just hearing, you know, how, you know, what the challenges are out there. Uh, but I think we are... We, contrary to what people think, we are not in a World War II environment, you know? Right. I mean, and I, think that I try to raise that issue with when I talk to military audiences, too, is that um, you can't assume that any amount of collateral damage will be acceptable depending on the context of the operation. Because we've seen in recent history where political will will break when a certain number of civilian casualties and collateral damage is occurring because the military is maybe not um, as trained in the operation. And we, we saw that in the first battle of Fallujah. We've seen that in Afghanistan. We've seen it in um, recent battles in Iraq. When you lose political will, this is you know, all, all warfare is you know, politics. I mean, if you lose political will for the operation, now the military will be um, constrained in their attempts. So they can't assume unlimited collateral damage. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then there are, of course, those categories of uh, uh, actors that deliberately engage in attacks of civilians, which is, I think, that category of actors is very difficult. Uh, and what more we can do to influence their behavior is still an uphill battle for all of us. Uh, um, so, but I think what is really important is uh, that uh, where we have good examples of political will and leadership exhibited on both on the civilian and the military side, those good practices, those good examples should be shared because that's an incentive uh, for other militaries and other governments to say, hey, this, this country did this. This military did this. Maybe I can do this too. I mean, uh, so, and, and I think just the sharing, right? There's this more we can share and, and uh, you know, trying to get certain militaries not to say, this is a classified issue. You know, I'm like, of course, you don't want the enemy to know anything. But I think there is more er uh, areas of transparency and sharing good practices than less. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And I'm excited about the future of this. Um, and I think you're, 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 you are a very big voice on, I can't stress enough on the both sides, all sides, um, having the almost emotional intelligence to understand both sides of the, the challenges. And then of course, understand there are actors that don't care about the challenges and that are, are going to continue to operate this way, but there's still other ways that we can approach to influence. Um, so they stop doing that. Um, it's been a great pleasure having you on the podcast, Sahar. And I, I, I can't wait for listeners to hear from what, what I view as another urban warfare expert. No, thanks so much, John. Um, really, uh, again, uh, really excited to be here and I really appreciate uh, the time. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.